You're listening to a sermon from Covenant Church. All right, we're in the Gospel of Luke this morning. I want to again welcome you all. So good to have you here. Happy Easter to you. We are going to look at the Gospel of Luke, who loves the image of a journey. So this is a theme in Luke, the journey. And on this Easter day, in Luke 24, Luke is the only one who gives us this account. But Luke shares with us how Jesus interacted with two people walking away. Two people walking away from it all. And the risen Jesus on the very first Easter comes alongside them. So follow along as I read Luke 24. By the way, we have some Bibles underneath the seats. If you need a Bible, we're going to have all the passages on the screen today. But if you need a Bible, you're invited to take one of the Bibles underneath the seats. Follow along as I read this account of Jesus meeting two disciples who are walking away. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here, there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And he said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. This is God's word. Now this Easter begins with hope in the past tense. They're walking away. It's symbolic. They're walking away from Jerusalem, the city of God. They're walking away from the other disciples. I kind of wonder if they're uh, wondering themselves if the whole Jesus movement thing to them seems like it had been shattered. Had they heard about Peter, Jesus' lead apostle, denying Jesus three times? Had they heard about the, the apostles themselves that Jesus arrest fleeing? Hey, everybody fled. It seems like, I mean, we don't even know what happened. Had they heard about Judas betraying Jesus? Cleopas speaks of hope in the past tense. And Jesus doesn't, if you notice here, he doesn't check their hall pass on the road. Hey, where are you guys going? You're going the wrong direction. It's going to stop right here. The risen Jesus in compassion walks with them. He asks them questions. And did you uh, miss this detail? They're so sad. They stopped for a second. They stood still. They can't even walk when they begin to explain it. And he draws it out of them in compassion. Hope is in the past tense. We could look back, okay, that we could pick examples culturally where there was hope and then there was not hope. Sometimes 
it's very clear afterwards, hey, we actually hoped in the wrong thing. Uh, the beginning of the 1900s, going back here for a while, the beginning of 120 years ago, the idea was in America and much of the Western world, hey, our medicines are great. This is pre-pandemics. This is pre-AIDS. This is pre a lot of things that have happened in the 20th century, pre-two world wars, pre a lot of things that are about to go down. But there's an idea of progress. Hey, the world's getting better. Uh, life's just going to get better. You know what Herbert Hoover is famous for? Uh, obviously an American president. He's most famous for a quote he made in 1928, which is two years before the Great Depression, before the stock market just absolutely obliterated. And he said, hey, everybody, you know what? We are closer to ever to absolutely abolishing poverty. We in America today are nearer to the final triumph over poverty than ever before in the history of any land than the Great Depression. Uh, it's a little funny now, kind of not much, not if you live through it. There's some more recent examples that sting a little bit more. Does anybody remember when the internet uh, first was growing, the, the world was awakening to the, the presence of the internet and it was growing and more and more people were getting connected. And the thought was, now that we have the internet, we're all going to get along better. <laughs> now that we, people are connected now, and you know what? We're, it's going to bring the world together. We have this new technology. No one foresaw, they'll actually be, uh, this will lead to polarization. And no matter what crazy thought you have, you can find some other people that are like, you're exactly right. The internet will help us all get along better. So there's, there's hopes like that, where hope is right, rightly in the past tense for that hope. The personal hopes sting a little bit more. A lot of us come here this morning with hopes about how our life we're gonna turn out or for our family or for relationships or for dreams that we had. It just didn't work out that way. Is hope in the past tense for you. You know, there's different responses to this. Um, Nietzsche had a response to this. Okay, I'm going to warn you, this isn't exactly chicken soup for the soul. Nietzsche scorned, quote, the weakling's doctrines of optimism. You who hope you're weak, you foolish dreamers, basically. You were fools to hope said Nietzsche. A novel that was uh, chosen as the best of in 22 was on a lot of lists. One in New York Times, 10 best books of 2022 was on a bunch of different lists. It's based on structurally and similar in name to Charles Dickens famous novel, David Copperfield, where David Copperfield's about the plight of those in poverty, an empathetic look at the plight of poverty, and a novelist, Barbara Kingsolver, wrote a book. Uh, she entitled hers Demon Copperhead. Not David Copperfield, but Demon Copperhead. And this kid who grows up poor in rural Kentucky really doesn't have anyone. His name's Damon, but because of his red fiery hair, people call him Demon, and he just accepts that namesake. And he has this quote. I just finished uh, this novel recently. He has this quote when 
he's wanting some people to help him, and because he has no one to take him in, and he has this quote that goes like this. My thinking that this family is not like everybody else, but special as regards maybe the Jesus of loving your neighbor as much as you love yourself. You know, for goodness sake, had I learned that lesson, Sunday school stories are just another type of superhero comic. Counting on Jesus to save the day is no more real than sending up the Batman signal. Demon Copperhead is saying, hey, this Jesus thing, we had hoped, but maybe I should grow up. He's basically saying, maybe I should grow up and accept an adult view and not have that kind of hope. The two disciples on the Emmaus Road are wondering that. They're wondering, were we foolish? We had hoped that Jesus would be the Savior. And it seems like that's gone. And Jesus draws it out of them. And they explain, look, here Jesus did all this stuff. He touched all these people. He healed the blind. He gave a widow back her dead son. And then that guy was condemned to die and was crucified. And now there's this resurrection thing. We don't know what to think about that. We don't know what to make of this news. How does Jesus bring hope on that road in this situation? Three ways Jesus brings hope, and then we're going to apply that hope. We're going to see how Jesus brings hope in very specific ways, okay? Three ways Jesus brings hope. The first is just this. Jesus brings hope by drawing near and walking with them. Don't miss that the resurrected Son of God on the first Easter, the day he rose from the dead, walks with the brokenhearted. In a literal and metaphorical sense. Tell me about this. And he walks with them. He doesn't, uh, he's going to instruct them. He's going to give them some keys to understanding. But he, he walks with them. Christianity teaches that Jesus, without sin, experienced the suffering of this world. There's psalms for everything. The psalms are more honest than people in general. Psalms are very honest. And Jesus took up Psalm 22 on his lips while he's on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Psalm ends in triumph, but it admits pain. Another line from that Psalm, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Maybe that's your heart. Jesus walks with the brokenhearted. He also instructs them. Look at what he does. Listen to this next verse. And he said to them, O foolish hearts, O foolish ones. And remember, they said, Now, it seems like you're the one who's clueless. It seems like you're the one who doesn't know anything. And he gives them, I think in context, it's a gentle rebuke. It's like, Come on, guys. O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus brings hope by revealing himself in the scriptures. It would have been like the greatest Sunday school lesson ever. Moses and the prophets, all the ways that God had revealed himself, Jesus gives them the key It's all about him. Jesus completes the story. The sacrifices in the Old Testament about sin, 
Those are fulfilled in Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. Passages like this, Isaiah 53, okay, 600 years before Jesus came, there's this prophet Isaiah who describes a coming of a future servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord is amazing. The servant of the Lord. And look, Isaiah is that old. You can look it up. And this servant is going to come, and he's actually going to bring God's people back to himself, but the claims are bigger. The claim is that this news will go on through history and actually reach the far corners of the world. And here we are thousands of years later on the other side of the world in a language that hadn't been developed yet, talking about Jesus. This servant is going to bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth. That was the claim. And that was like, this is mysterious, mind-boggling. And also, and no one understood what this was about, right in the middle of describing the servant, and this, this passage has been read this weekend for thousands of years. There's a description of how this servant of God, quote, verse 3, would be despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. How could this servant of God be rejected like this? Look at verse 5. Be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. It's another word for sin. So as if this person would stand in our place. Be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Seems like, and this was understood after, God's plan was to lay the sin, the sin of his people, the sin of the world on this Jesus. That's the claim. And then there's this mysterious kind of talk of this is God's plan and there's going to be resurrection. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Remember Jesus saying it was necessary. It was God's plan. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And ancient people said, so he's going to die? But also his days are prolonged. What he's after death, there's a thing and he's going to last forever and be there forever. And Jesus gives them the key. And maybe you got to wonder if these two disciples were given this gift so they explain, you know, two more teachers for the early church. Hey, this is how what we learned about how Jesus fulfills all of God's scriptures. This is what we learned about how it's all about Jesus and about how Jesus died for our sins. Here's the thing. Very few people have a beef with Jesus' ethical teaching. If you walk down the street, Doylestown, or say, what do you know about how Jesus told us to live? Even people who are not familiar with Christianity at all, and we actually want to be a church where people explore Jesus and learn about Jesus, people probably say, well, I think he told us to like love people, treat other people like we want to be treated. Yes, people are kind of into it. They might know we're supposed to love enemies. That's hard, but Jesus said it. Forgive those who sin against us. Very few people have a beef with that. Here's what Jesus says, though, that's edgier and offensive. Jesus says it was necessary for him to die and be raised again for you 
to be made spiritually whole, for you to be resurrected, for you to be saved. Jesus says that he has to happen, that that had to happen for us to be saved. Why couldn't Jesus just be a good teacher and tell us how to live? Well, you know what that would like? That would be like people who can't swim, not with the best lessons of the world, you know, drowning, and Jesus just being on the sideline giving us swim lessons. Hey, you're drowning. You have no hope of being, you're not physically capable of loving others like you love yourself. You're not morally capable of loving people and this is what I don't mean not ever. I don't mean none of us love people ever. That's not true. But are you capable, hey, everybody, always treat others from now on with the same consistency, creativity, patience, love, kindness as you would want to be treated. Do that now perfectly for the rest of your life. Go. Do better. Spiritually aware people would be like, okay, I'm not going to be able to live that out perfectly, Right? Jesus doesn't give drowning people swim lessons. He saves them. Jesus doesn't give drowning people powerless people and moral example. He is their savior. This is revealed next in another way. You know what happens? Jesus reveals himself in a very specific way, in the language that Luke chooses to use, he's like their eyes were kept from recognizing him so that they would like not just lose their minds and know it was Jesus. God shields the identity of Jesus, but then he's about to be revealed, and he's revealed in a very specific way. Listen to what happens next. So they drew near to the village to which they are going. He acted as if he was going for farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is evening, the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did, our not, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road when he opened to us the scriptures? And they arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Jesus reveals himself in the breaking of the bread. Now, oh, this is actually a theme in Luke. And at this church, we've actually been going through Luke and seeing how Jesus talks about the welcome of the gospel in the context of table fellowship and meals. Jesus has this thing with meals, okay? Jesus has a thing with meals, and he actually eats with tax collectors and sinners, and it bothers the religious authorities, and they basically have a beef with Jesus. It seems like you like those people, like you welcomed us. We don't really compute that. And Jesus actually said, no, this is the welcome of the kingdom. And God delights when someone comes to him and repents. And he's living that out in table fellowship. Jesus has meals. He also gives his disciple a meal. And it's the same language. Jesus took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. He broke the bread. 
He said, this is my body broken for you. That meal that Jesus gives us again and again, we're actually going to have that today. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today because this is the meal that Jesus gave us. And yes, Jesus has recognized in the breaking of the bread. We remember, right, it's symbolic and he's present in a unique way by his spirit to feed us with all the blessings of the gospel. His body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. Jesus is recognized in the breaking of the bread. We're going to celebrate that this morning, this Easter. Just like this Easter, in the first Easter, Jesus took bread and broke it. This hope, okay, Jesus gives them a hope. And what, that the resurrection happened is beginning to come into focus. What it means is beginning to come into focus. And specifically what this hope means, I'm going to give you three ways this brings specific hope and how we can apply this hope. And it's in this next passage. This is what happens next. Okay, so Cleopas, another disciple that's not named, and the 11, and some other people are gathered together. They're kind of standing around. Yeah, it's true. Uh, Peter went this morning. He didn't know what he's talking about, but then the Lord appeared to him. It actually really happened. And Cleopas comes in and said, like, he walked with us on the road. We actually saw him. And then this happens. Verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood amongst them, said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is, I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still disbelieved for joy or marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it before them. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Okay. How does Jesus apply the hope that he brings? Three ways. First is this, hope for their doubts. Do you notice it doesn't say, and, and Jesus appeared... And it's mysterious, right? He has a physical body. He can say, touch me. He can eat a piece of fish, but he can just appear. It's mysterious. He's in another dimension, but we're with a very physical body. And it doesn't say the disciples were like, of course, you talked about rising from the dead and you did it. They can't believe it. And they think that they might be hallucinating. They're startled. They're frightened. They think that, Okay, are we seeing something? And Jesus ha ha has, has the action. He has to say, look, it's me. Touch me. Uh, he shows them his hands and feet. You want to experience Jesus? Go be with his disciples who work through their own doubts. That's the whole point of Alpha, by the way. Alpha is a presentation. It's a video. 
not prayer. Uh, it's a video and a meal and discussion. And the people have been Christians for a while. We've all had our own doubts. Okay, could this be real? Could this be true? You know, what are your specific obje objections? Hear from others, discuss these things. You notice he, it says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Do you really know what Jesus said? A lot of times I like, I love interacting with people who are exploring faith. And I'll, I'll ask, what do you think the message of Jesus is? And sometimes there'll be little nuggets in there. And sometimes it's an absolute mess. And I'll say it a gentle way, actually, what Jesus actually said and what the gospel is, is something completely different. And you might be rejecting and walking away from something that you actually had, had never really had clearly explained to you. Alpha is a chance to explore the person of Jesus, the words of Jesus, and to explore it with other people, okay, over a dinner. Be honest about your doubts. That's something that we say in this church. Look, be honest about your doubts. And here's the honest way to be honest about your doubts. Be willing to doubt everything, even your doubts. That's true openness. Wait, this, this is the doubt I have. Christianity and the problem of evil. Why is there so much evil in the world? How do these things line up uh, scientifically? Will this make me a kinder person or a, a more narrow person? Be honest about your doubts and actually be willing to doubt your doubts. That's true openness. Do you notice here um, we have a real picture and the gospel's not a photoshopped one? How do you tell the difference between a real picture and a photoshopped one? When I was in seventh grade, the summer before seventh grade, I put kind of a significant burn on my face. Made my mom cry. It's a long story. We won't go into it. It was in my school picture. And they don't Photoshop uh, school pictures back in the 80s, or as my daughter likes to say, the 1800s. No, it was the 80s, not the 1800s. Made my mom cry, made my mom a little sad. Didn't last forever. But you could tell it was not a Photoshop picture because the blemishes were there. Does this read like a legend to you? If the disciples made this up, do you invent stupid things that you said and did and put that in there? Um, Peter denied Jesus. Judas betrayed him. All the disciples fled. My favorite one, which is kind of a curious one, only in the Gospel of Mark, which at the Gospel of Mark is the shortest gospel. It's based largely on the preaching and teaching of Peter. But there's this curious thing. When Jesus is being arrested, Mark alone describes this young man who is wearing nothing but a linen garment, and he's following along with the disciples. All the rest of the, the guys had fled, and they're like, well, we, they got Jesus. Maybe we should grab this guy too. And they grab him. They grab his linen cloak, and the guy runs away naked. The young man runs away naked. Why would Mark include, yeah, there's this one guy that, young guy, he also ran away naked. Why would he include that? It's not like an important detail. The strongest case is Mark. How would he know that? No other disciples are there. And Mark's humbly admitting he ran away too in absolute shame. 
This is a real picture, not a photoshopped one. Uh, here's a cause of doubt, and I get this. I talk to a lot of people about it. The church in the West and a lot in America has been rocked. There's been different scandals, right? Sexual sin, misuse of power, cover-up, misuse of money. And it's caused many people to walk away. What would the earliest disciples have said about that? Would they be, like, certainly they'd say, hey, there's certain standards for leadership, and there needs to be accountability, and we actually need humble leaders. We need leaders whose lives are transparent. Uh, not absolutely perfect leaders, because we're all growing, but there are standards, and this is wrong. But would they be, would they be absolutely shocked? The Bible is honest about the failure of leaders and yet also has this message. Jesus is still risen from the dead for our sins. You can still be forgiven. Jesus is still alive. This is still true. This is a real picture, not a photoshopped one. And Jesus is still Jesus. Wouldn't the disciples have said that? They would have said, yeah, that's terrible. I'm so sorry that happened to you. I'm so sorry that you watched your church do that. And also, Jesus is still Jesus. There's hope for our doubts. Also, there's hope for guilt. There's hope for guilt. Christianity, the message of the gospel, is that people can have new beginnings. Jesus believes in forgiveness, wants us to practice it. Right now in this cultural moment, if you screw up, and it might be like you've hurt people, it could be, okay, we know it can be an insensitive, stupid, foolish, harmful, maybe racist tweet. Right now in our cultural moment, if you've done something wrong, being canceled means, here's the logic of being canceled, you don't get to participate anymore. You're done now forever. That's what being canceled, that's the hope of canceling somebody is that they will be done forever. What's the message of Jesus? Jesus goes, appears especially to Simon who denied him, goes to his disciples who fled, and he recommissions them. He's the one. He's like, you guys saw me. And actually, it was God's plan for this to happen to me. You are the ones I will work through to bring this message to the world. And he does. The message of forgiveness is for all those who have blown it. For those of you who have walked away, maybe you've walked away from God, rejected God. But do you know that God accepts us back through Jesus? That's the message of the gospel. God receives us through Jesus. Jesus died for our sins, and we can admit we have them. It's actually really good news. I, uh, I was talking with my wife recently. We were joking about this, that... Okay, so we'll have been married 30 years this, uh, this summer. And if, when we were married, looking at our families, you wouldn't have chosen us for the high school superlative, most likely to succeed. <laughs> hey, with these experiences, these sins, uh, I grew up an angry guy. I like to yell. Uh, my wife, her brokenness comes out in different ways. You wouldn't have thought, this will go well. You know, we've been a great reality show in our early years of marriage. Jesus' hope for guilt 
what it does is it softens you because Jesus has died for our sins. We receive the forgiveness of Jesus. And when you do that, it's easier to extend that to another human being. Being married, you never see someone's strengths that they bring to the world. That's, that's the front row seat for that. You also get a front row seat for all the ways that are crazy. And it's mutual. There's hope. Jesus receives us, forgives us, and sends us. There's also, finally, hope for doubt, hope for guilt, and hope for a new world. He noticed Jesus is physically there. He says, touch me. What's the whole could I have a piece of fish thing? What's that about? We love the world. Yes, you should. Is being a Christian saying, you know what? Don't get attached to the world. This is all going to be gone. This doesn't matter. It's actually not that. Okay? I'll give you, uh, there's another way to deal with attachment to the world. This is very old. This is from Epictetus. He died in, Greek philosopher, died in AD 35. If you don't want your kid to be the fourth Michael in kindergarten, you can name him Epictetus. Um, Epictetus said, you know what we should do? You know how you get through life? Don't become attached. Don't become attached to the good things of this world, to the people you love. When you kiss your child, your brother, your friend, never give way entirely to your affections. Don't be attached. It's actually, there's different religions about this. This is a Buddhist thing too. Uh, there's a word that's translated renunciation, actually become not attached to the things of this world. Jesus says, no. Actually, we enjoy this thing, the things of this world. Could someone pass me? Who has the fish? Could someone bring me a piece of fish? And he eats it. And actually, the thing, the future of the universe and of God's people will be as solid as Jesus' body. And the things that we love about this world will be absolutely fulfilled and all the brokenness will be gone. There's a hope of resurrection and reunion. Being with the people we love and actually, Jesus' resurrection, it's the first taste of a whole new world. Actually love this world, love this world, and the people in this world, and it's solid. There's hope for a new world, even that we can taste. This is the gospel. This is real hope. Would you allow me to pray for us? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you bring hope you meet people struggling with doubt. You walk with them. Walk with us. I pray for those of us who are just struggling with doubt. And we thank you for hope in our guilt, comfort in our guilt, the message of forgiveness. We thank you that you bring not just a personal hope to us, but a hope to this world. Help us to live that out, to love the people of this world and the things of this world knowing that, Lord, nothing will be lost. Thank you for welcoming us to this table. Lord, please meet us as we come to the Lord's table, this meal that you've given us. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks for listening. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or in person on Sundays at 9 and 1045 a.m. Hope to see you there.